With the dawn of a new millennium, the James Bond franchise was entering into the 21st century. Although many viewers felt that the series was going to be unable to enter into the modern world of the 1990s, the Pierce Brosnan era proved all of those wrong. Now it was time to see if James Bond could continue in the 2000s. However, when the script that was written for the 20th film in the series ended up having a final attack occur in Manhattan, some changes had to be made following the September 11th disaster. Clearly, the road would be a bit rockier to make James Bond modernized than many had expected. Welcome back to Cases of Continuity, where we are continuing onwards through our journey of the history behind and the story contained within the James Bond franchise. My name is Ryan, I am your host, and today we're talking about the final James Bond film in the Pierce Brosnan era, and the 20th film in the entire James Bond series, Die Another Day. It was released in 2002, the first James Bond film of the 21st century. And it'll be interesting to see how this film ends up either propelling the franchise forward or leading it to completely change face entering into the newest James Bond's era, Daniel Craig. Now, let's get into the history behind Die Another Day. When we last left off with The World Is Not Enough, the James Bond series was continuing to make a significant amount of money at the box office, and ultimately, Although critics seemed to be divided, fans were certainly turning out in droves for the series, and as such, Eon Productions was riding high. Producers Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson immediately went to the director of The World Is Not Enough, Michael Apted, and asked him to return. Apted accepted the offer. However, ultimately, the offer was rescinded because the team decided to ask other directors to direct the film instead bit of a strange scenario, and I'm not entirely sure why the team decided to do that, other than maybe they were trying to find somebody that would appease the critics more, I'm not entirely sure. Ultimately, all the other directors that the team asked ended up declining it, including even Martin Scorsese, who was considered for a brief moment. Finally, they found Lee Tamahori, who ended up accepting the offer. Neil Purvis and Robert Wade returned to pen the script, this time related to some sort of North Korean army colonel who ends up going rogue. This would also be the 40th anniversary of the James Bond films, which initially began back in 1962 with Dr. No. As such, the script that was written ended up containing references to every single previous James Bond film, so you can imagine there's going to be a lot of continuity for us to discuss later in the episode. Additionally, the story ended up having a basis in the original books for Moonraker, The Man with the Golden Gun, and even Kingsley Amos's Colonel Sun. Colonel Sun was actually the first continuation book that was written after the death of Ian Fleming. Amos wrote it to continue on the story of James Bond, despite Fleming no longer being alive. While casting the film, X-Men star Halle Berry was cast as the main love interest of Bond in the film, NSA agent Jinx. Rosamund Pike's breakout role as Miranda Frost occurred in this film, and Toby Stevens was cast as villain Gustav Graves. Graves was actually modeled on the main villain of Moonraker, Hugo Drax, further showing the 
impact that the Moonraker book had on this film. John Cleese returned to portray the main character of Hugh in the film, ultimately having him take on the role that was originally held by Desmond Llewellyn. It's a Passover of the role that is very explicitly seen in this film, and it's something that had never previously been shown for any other handing over of the codenames, such as Moneypenny, M, or James Bond. It's really cool to see one version of Q handing down that role to the next version of Q. Filming started in early 2002 at Pinewood Studios in England on the 007 soundstage. Location shooting occurred with some surfing in Hawaii. Well, Spain ended up being the stand-in for Cuba in the film. While filming the scenes in which Halle Berry approaches James Bond while in a bikini, she became extremely cold due to the much cooler climate of Spain compared to Cuba. Between takes, she actually had to have a towel wrapped over her to ensure that she wouldn't get sick, ultimately. While filming an action sequence in Spain, when a smoke grenade went off, debris ended up in Halle Berry's eye, and it took 30 minutes in order to remove that, delaying filming that day. Location shooting also occurred in Iceland and Norway for different pieces of the film that took place in an icy, cold environment. However, there was also a fair amount of blue screen and CGI that was used for this film. Certainly there had been quite a large amount of CGI ever since the Pierce Brosnan era started. However, it was most explicit, most obvious, and most widespread in this film. In fact, the CGI was of a bit poor quality as well, especially compared to some of the other CGI in other films released in that year, such as the Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, and as such, that would garner quite a bit of criticism from different audiences. David Arnold returned to create the score for the film. The title song, was written by Merwais Amadzai and was performed by 1980s pop star Madonna, who actually made a cameo in the film as well. Worth noting that although Madonna was quite a big star at this point, she also was past her prime with many of the songs that she had written in the 80s, and auto-tune was on full display in the song. The song was quite a controversial one. Some folks have considered it to be among the best in the series, but many more consider it to be one of the worst. Personally, I think it's a very difficult song to listen to. Not pleasant at all. I'll talk a lot more about how that song ties into the overall theme sequence later in the episode, but ultimately, I think that it is easily one of the worst James Bond theme songs by far. The film would be nominated for both a Golden Globe and a Golden Raspberry, so it's worth noting that folks were quite divided on whether they liked or disliked this film. The film also won Worst Supporting Actress for Madonna with her cameo in the film. It was clearly quite poor considering the fact that she only appeared for a couple of minutes. This film also had the heaviest product placement yet, and it's quite obvious. Released in 2002, it was very controversial and boycotted in South Korea. The Koreans did not care for how the film seemed to portray Koreans as very warlike and focused on military tactics, and as such, the film was heavily disliked in South Korea. Despite that, though, out of its $142 million budget, the film made significantly more than that at $432 million. It performed extremely well against two other big films at the time, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets and The Santa Claus 2, and at the time of its release, it was the highest grossing James Bond film yet. Clearly, the series was still flying high 
despite the decreasing quality of the films. Although some critics at the time liked the story and the action, the CGI, as I mentioned before, and the utter ridiculousness were highly criticized. Even Roger Moore, in an interview, stated that he thought that the storyline was far, far too ridiculous for James Bond films. And this coming from the James Bond who went into space. Nowadays, Die Another Day is considered one of the very worst James Bond films, and it's usually always in the bottom five of any list ranking the James Bond films. Although some spin-offs had been planned for Michelle Yeoh's character of Mei Lin from Tomorrow Never Dies, that idea for a spin-off ended up being switched to a spin-off for Jinx from this film, because ultimately, even if the film's quality was quite poor, the film was still very popular. But ultimately, the $80 million price tag that would have been attached to that film for a female action film, which was quite unheard of at the time, ended up being too much for MGM, and they cancelled the film. Despite some box office success that had been had by all four of the films in the Pierce Brosnan era, audiences and critics seemed to be getting restless with the franchise, and Eon Production started to look at some of the other films that had been released around this time. I'd like to point to two main film series that ended up, in my opinion, being the most significant in leading the James Bond franchise to completely change following Die Another Day and entering into the Daniel Craig era. The first of these film series was originally released in 1997, and with the third film releasing in 2002, the Austin Powers franchise, which consists of Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, Austin Powers in The Spy Who Shagged Me, and Austin Powers in Goldmember. It's a series of three different comedy films that parody the James Bond series. They star Michael Myers, and they point out how silly and ridiculous and over-the-top the series is. Most notably, they like to make a lot of fun with the Sean Connery versions of the films, with Dr. Evil, the main villain, very much being a parody of Blofeld, different folks who work with Dr. Evil parodying such villains as Oddjob, Goldfinger, and even Largo from Thunderball. It's very clear that these films don't take the James Bond series seriously because of how over-the-top and unrealistic the James Bond films can be, especially the Roger Moore and Sean Connery versions. And if they're making fun of the Sean Connery ones, the Pierce Brosnan films, which are almost entirely based on the Sean Connery era, fall victim to those jokes and criticisms that are contained within the Austin Powers series. As such, it started to become tougher for audiences to take James Bond films as seriously, and with how popular the Austin Powers comedy trilogy was, folks started to see James Bond as a relic of the past, and as not as nail-biting or realistic or gritty as a lot of other action films were at this time. Similarly, and perhaps even more notably, a new action franchise was starting to enter the scene as well. The first of those films was released in 1996 and the second in 2000. I'm of course talking about the Mission Impossible series, starring Tom Cruise as Agent Ethan Hunt, who works for the Impossible Mission Force, or IMF. These films are darker, grittier, and far more realistic than the James Bond series was at this time. They were based on a 1960s television show that was very ridiculous in its own right, had individuals wearing masks that allowed them to wear, look entirely like other folks, and although that was continued in the Mission Impossible films, 
ultimately the series had plots that were more grounded, had villains that seemed more realistic and not as out there as the James Bond series had, and Eon Productions was taking notice. Another thing that Eon Productions took notice of was how much those films made at the box office. The first Mission Impossible film made $457 million, more than any James Bond film at the time. Mission Impossible 2 made even more, $546 million. That number was almost unfathomable to Eon Productions. These films were ultimately more popular with audiences than Pierce Brosnan and James Bond films were. Eventually, they would rival the James Bond series' throne as the top spy thriller film series. In fact, even later on, Mission Impossible Fallout in 2018 would make $791 million. Could the James Bond series ever make as much as the Mission Impossible series was? Could they find a way to redevelop themselves in order to create a film that audiences would respond even more enthusiastically to? Only time would tell. But ultimately, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli were paying attention to what else was going on in the film scene, especially the action film scene. And with the Austin Powers series pointing out all of the ridiculousness in the James Bond films and the Mission Impossible films ultimately doing what the James Bond films were doing in a way that audiences were more interested in really helped to propel Eon Productions to make some changes. They started to draw some inspiration from the Timothy Dalton era and decided that it was time to completely reinvent James Bond. They decided that Die Another Day would be Pierce Brosnan's final role in the film, very much especially due to his age. He was nearly 50, and as you may recall, when Roger Moore was far too old to portray James Bond in his final few films, the audiences and critics took notice and despised that. Although there was significant fan support behind Pierce Brosnan staying in the role, Broccoli and Wilson had a very emotional call with Pierce Brosnan, where they sadly told him that it was time for his time as James Bond to come to an end. This occurred in 2004, and just after that time, Pierce Brosnan has continued to act in many high-profile films, ranging from musicals such as Mamma Mia to children's films such as Percy Jackson's and the Olympians to many, many more. He's a UNICEF Ireland ambassador and is still quite active in the film scene today at the age of 70 at the time of recording. So clearly, Pierce Brosnan's career has continued to rise and he's continued to do quite well for himself. But where would the James Bond series go from here? Only time will tell. Before we do talk about the future of the James Bond series with the Daniel Craig era though, it's time for us to get into the story within Die Another Day. As mentioned earlier, the idea behind this film is that there is a North Korean colonel whose father is a North Korean general. That colonel is conducting some illegal arms trades with some people who are smuggling conflict diamonds from Africa. The general is quite unaware of this, but James Bond is, and at the beginning of the film, we see that he is sent in to prevent this trade from occurring. However, 
it all goes afoul when James Bond is captured immediately after it seems that Colonel Moon is going to be killed as he falls down a waterfall. Bond is captured and is held in the custody of the North Korean government for a significant amount of months before finally being traded with a major North Korean operative named Zhao. Once Bond ends up being returned to MI6 and the Americans, he learns that there have been quite a few issues since his absence. Namely, that an American operative within the North Korean government has been found out and killed. The transmission that gave this information came from the prison where Bond was being housed, and as such, MI6 and the Americans think that Bond may have talked about it. Of course, Bond didn't. He did keep his mouth shut, but there's no reason for the Americans and the British to believe him. Furthermore, he's gone and gotten himself captured, and as such, he is no longer an operative with MI6. However, Bond is desperate to clear his name. He ends up tracking down Zhao to Havana, Cuba, and once he's there, meets up with a woman who's also after Zhao, named Jinx. With some help from Chinese intelligence, who's also quite unhappy with the North Korean government and with Zhao, Bond learns that Zhao is meeting with a genetic scientist at the Alvarez Clinic. Both Bond and Jinx sneak in there, and once they do that, they end up seeing Zhao undergoing some kind of procedure. Furthermore, we learn that Alvarez is performing different DNA experiments that can completely change a person's DNA. Ultimately, Zhao gets away. However, Bond ends up retrieving a capsule that Zhao had that contains some conflict diamonds. These conflict diamonds end up having a symbol on it related to a man named Gustav Graves. They also have the same chemical composition as conflict diamonds, which was what Bond saw in North Korea. It's very strange, and as such, Bond starts researching Graves as he heads back to England to meet up with the man. Once there, he also meets Miranda Frost, a publicist who works with Graves and seems to have a bit of a connection with him. After a very intense fencing match between Bond and Graves that seems less sporting and more intense, Bond ends up being invited to Iceland for a demonstration of a new satellite that's been developed by Graves called Icarus. However, before long, Bond is given a mysterious key that leads to abandoned subway station. Down there is M, who reveals that although she doesn't necessarily agree with what Bond's doing, she trusts him to make the right decision. M ends up giving Bond access to Q. Q is able to provide Bond with a sonic ring that can break through bulletproof glass, as well as an invisible car that's an Aston Martin. The invisible car, as a side note, is perhaps the most ridiculous James Bond gadget ever. It is absolutely ridiculous. The CGI is horrible with it, and it's so ridiculously unrealistic that, in my opinion, it completely takes you out of the film. Regardless, though, once 
Bond arrives in Iceland, he learns that Frost is working for M. M had an inside person in Graves' operation the whole time. Jinx arrives as well, and Bond learns that Jinx is an NSA agent with the Americans. So ultimately, he and Jinx are on the same side here. We also see that Graves is using the face mask device as well. We hear Graves talking to Zhao. Graves says that he's been unable to speak since the operation. And then we learn the truth. Graves is actually Colonel Moon. Moon underwent the DNA procedure in order to disguise himself and to appear that he's dead. He then became Gustav Graves. Very rich, very wealthy, and ended up building the Icarus weapon which can reflect the sun's light to the earth and completely burn up whatever it's being pointed at. We also learn that Miranda Frost is a double agent and she betrays James Bond as Jinx is being captured. Ultimately, Bond is able to escape from Frost using his sonic ring to get through the glass floor and is able to flee away in a speeder plane, but he's chased by the Icarus across the ice. He parasurfs away, gets back to the compound, and ends up in a car chase in the invisible car as well. He's ultimately able to kill Zhao and save Jinx as the ice castle is melting around him due to the Icarus. However, Graves escapes as well. The good news is that Bond knows the truth now. He's able to determine that Frost was indeed the mole inside the operation. It wasn't him. He clears his name and learns that the Americans have been trying to project Jinx from the mole the entire time. The Americans and MI6 work together to send Jinx and Bond into North Korea, where they're able to see that the captured General Moon is meeting with his son. The plan that Colonel Moon has is to point Icarus at South Korea to destroy the allies of the Americans and MI6. However, the General realizes that this method is completely wrong and is killed by his son. Aboard the plane, it's a double fight, where Bond is facing off against Moon and Jinx is facing off against Frost, but ultimately, Bond and Jinx win their fights and Moon and Frost are killed. They're able to shut down Icarus and escape in the helicopter before, finally, they escape with the diamonds. As the film ends, we hear an alternate version of the main theme and learn that James Bond will return. Speaking of the theme, I did quite gloss over the usage of the theme in this film, but I absolutely despise it. Not only is the auto-tune completely grating to hear, it sounds so unnatural and the song is not catchy at all. On top of that, the theme song is being played over a sequence of James Bond being tortured while he's been captured in North Korea. We see images of the scorpions that are being used to sting and torture Bond. We see images of Bond being forced into ice water and attempting to be forced into talking. We see different images of fire as he's being threatened. It's quite horrifying. Just about every other theme song that has had James Bond or images of James Bond in it has showed Bond being victorious or at least fighting. And here we see Bond completely helpless. It's not victorious at all, and hearing this high-energy song, albeit a poor song being played in the background, to me actually feels a little bit disrespectful to the character. I really don't care for how it was done at all, and this painful to listen to song, coupled with 
this very difficult to watch sequence makes it easily one of the worst James Bond intro sequences ever in my book. Outside of that, let's talk about my opinions of this film. First off, I thought the use of the locations was quite nice. Although it was very clear that many aspects of Iceland were CGI, what was real was really neat to see. The snowy atmosphere in the landscape, the ice, the car chase across the ice was very neat to see, even if the invisible car was absolutely ridiculous. And ultimately, I really liked how they used that portion there. We didn't see much of Korea, which is quite understandable, because the team was obviously unable to film in North Korea. However, the scenes that were themed to be in Cuba and that were filmed in Spain were really, really neat to see as well. I feel like the team tried to incorporate Cuban culture even though they weren't in Cuba, and it was really, really neat to see, especially noticing the contrast between the warm tropical climate of Cuba to the absolutely frigid, freezing climate that can be seen over in Iceland later in the film. And I think that's a really neat contrast. So I like the locations. I also thought the characters were decent. I didn't hate any of the characters, but I did hate the special effects. The CGI is so horrible, and it's very prevalent throughout the entire film. And that certainly takes one out of the film and just makes it so, so obvious just how fake and over-the-top it is. I also thought the writing was exceptionally bad for this film. Certainly, there have been some poor James Bond film scripts in the past, but the lines just feel so forced that, once again, much like the special effects, completely took me out of the story of the film here. Speaking of the story... It's so ridiculous, and again, we've had ridiculous James Bond stories before, and in the past I've criticized those, and it's worth criticizing these as well. It's not good. It's so over the top, and if you compare it to the original James Bond books, and even some of the original James Bond films, it's so mind-boggling, and just, to me at least, not terribly entertaining. And I'd also like to mention the filters that can be seen in the film. Whenever Bond is in Korea, there's this gray filter on the screen. And then when he's in Cuba, a yellow filter. And then seems like a blue filter from what I could tell in Iceland. Just feels like a cheap way to make it seem like Bond is in a different place. I don't know. I'd rather have it have the vibrant colors of wherever Bond is and see the location that he's in for what it is. And... Again, that really took me out of the film as well. Ultimately, I do not care for this film. I certainly think it's easily one of the worst James Bond films. It's very much near the bottom, right there with the man with the golden gun for me. And ultimately, I am horribly disappointed by Pierce Brosnan's final film as James Bond, especially considering how much I enjoy The World Is Not Enough and absolutely love Goldeneye. Now, though, let's dive deep into the continuity within this film. It's worth noting that we see Bond's relationship with M once again, and it's very much the same as it was in Goldeneye. There's this begrudging respect between the two, even if they don't necessarily like each other. It's nice to see that continued on. We have another reference to Universal Exports, Bond's cover that he's used in many previous films, and we hear Bond 
being undercover as an ornithologist. If you listened to my very first episode on Dr. No, you may recall that James Bond was originally the name of an ornithologist, or somebody who studies birds, and that was where Ian Fleming got the original name for the James Bond character from. We see a gun being fired in an airplane, which leads me to very much remember the scene from Goldfinger, where James Bond tells Goldfinger that when firing a gun in an airplane, very bad things can happen and people can be sucked out, and that's exactly what happens in this film as well. We see a scene where Money Penny has some virtual reality goggles on, she's kissing and sharing a moment with Bond, and it's a neat way to show the relationship between this Money Penny and Bond, and how there's very much this flirtatious relationship, something that we saw way back when with the Sean Connery and George Lazenby versions of Bond, very different from how Roger Moore's version of Bond had a relationship with Money Penny, which was definitely more of a friendship relationship. We also see a new version of Q, who makes some significant references to his predecessor and how he was warned from his predecessor about James Bond. Those are all of the scattered pieces of continuity, but as I mentioned during the history portion of this episode, there's also a piece of continuity that references every single previous James Bond film. So let's go ahead and dig into those pieces of continuity as well. Starting off with Dr. No. So with Dr. No, there's the iconic scene where Honey Rider rises from the ocean dressed in a bikini, which is copied almost shot for shot with Jinx in this film when Jinx is initially introduced. In From Russia With Love, there were some shoes with spikes on them, some knives that were worn by Spectre agent Colonel Rosa Kleb. We see those shoes appear again when Bond is in Q's workshop in Die Another Day. In Goldfinger, Bond is very iconically threatened with a large laser. We see the same threat occur to Jinx in the Ice Palace in this film. There's the jetpack in Thunderball, which can be seen in Q's lab. In You Only Live Twice, there's a boat that Bond is initially recovered from when his funeral is faked called the Tenby. That is the same name of the boat that Bond is brought onto after being rescued from the North Koreans in Die Another Day. For On Her Majesty's Secret Service, there's a disc that can be seen in the film that has the letters OHMSS for On Her Majesty's Secret Service written on it. For Diamonds Are Forever, well, the plot, of course, in Die Another Day revolves around diamonds, and even in a magazine portion, one can see that Gustav Graves has used that same film, Diamonds Are Forever. In Live and Let Die, Bond ends up using a Smith & Wesson gun, as opposed to the usual Walther PPK that he uses. That same gun is used by Bond in Die Another Day, when he's threatening Zhao. For the man with the golden gun, Bond retrieves a golden bullet from the belly button of a belly dancer, and at the very end of Die Another Day, Jinx has some of the diamonds that were retrieved in her belly buttons. The Spy Who Loved Me has a very iconic opening where Bond has a parachute with the Union Jack on it that, of course, leads into the iconic theme song for that film. In Die Another Day, Gustav Graves has that same parachute with the Union Jack on it. For Moonraker, there is the iconic fencing battle in Venice, Italy within the glass shop and with all of the different pieces being broken. 
The fencing battle returns again to the James Bond series in Die Another Day, this time going through Gustav Graves' Country Club. For Your Eyes Only involves an underwater portion with some very memorable yellow diving helmets, which can be seen in Q's workshop. Octopussy similarly has a fake alligator that can also be seen in the background of Q's workshop. Speaking of Q's workshop, A View to a Kill has a small electronic robot that is also in Q's lab. For The Living Daylights, James Bond, near the very end of the film, parachutes out of a plane within a car. The same type of thing happens in Die Another Day, except this time as the airplane is crashing, Bond and Jinx escape in a helicopter outside of the back of the plane. For License to Kill, Bond, as is very iconically known from that film, ends up having his 00 status revoked. The same exact thing happens immediately after Bond has been rescued from North Korea in Die Another Day. Albeit that version of Bond has very long hair and a beard that he's developed after he's been captured. Nearly unrecognizable at that point. In Goldeneye, Bond uses the laser from his watch. That same laser watch is used in Die Another Day. In Tomorrow Never Dies, Bond uses the remote control of his car. The same remote control being used through the phone is shown in Die Another Day. And in The World Is Not Enough, there's a geodesic dome, which is quite significant and plays a very important role in that film when Bond is analyzing the oil site. We see another one of those domes, this time being owned by Gustav Graves in Iceland in Die Another Day. And finally, obviously there's not necessarily a reference to Die Another Day, but there is a reference to it being the 20th James Bond film being created by Eon Productions when Q tells Bond that the watch that he's giving Bond is the 20th one he's gone through. Chock full of references and chock full of continuity in Die Another Day, and as much as I dislike the film, I love all of the little references and Easter eggs that are scattered around it. It makes it much more fun to watch a film of much lower quality, in my opinion. With all that being said, though, the Pierce Brosnan era has officially come to an end. As we talked about in the history, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli were looking to completely reinvent James Bond. And as we enter into the Daniel Craig era, they end up pressing a reset button. All of the previous continuity and storylines of James Bond happen in an entirely different universe than the next five films that we're going to be getting into. And to start it off, they decided to start with the very first James Bond story ever written. One that had been in some uncertain ownership troubles previously. It's a little tale called Casino Royale, and it would lead to what's often considered as the very best James Bond film ever, and it's my personal favorite. I cannot wait to dive into Casino Royale next week, but until then, my name is Ryan, thanks for listening, and have a fantastic day.